I think the most important thing never to forget is the problem that you're solving and to feel so strongly about something that people who you believe to be a lot smarter than you are telling you this is never going to work and you just don't care. Thanks for, for being on the show. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Seed Stories. Today I have my friend Vrinda on the show and her and I met at a lovely dim sum lunch um, that my daughter was at and I uh, we were also fellow YC alums so I'm really excited to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for having me John. I'm really excited and I loved meeting your daughter at that dim sum brunch. She's definitely a future founder. <laughs> I think she was just sitting there like slack jawed like these 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 ladies are so cool. <laughs> um, so Brenda, we always start with like, how in the world did you get into the world of startups and technology? Take us all the way back. Before we pressed record, you were talking about your early days in Cupertino. So maybe start there. Yeah, absolutely. So happy to start way back. I um, I and my family are first generation immigrants from India. And, you know, we settled down in Cupertino growing up because my dad was really fascinated with Silicon Valley. And I remember, you know, being in this land of Steve Jobs and just thinking, you know, that's what an entrepreneur looks like. And, you know, I don't look anything like him. So entrepreneurship was not really something that was on my radar, though. I always I think growing up in that environment with a very entrepreneurial culture, I was always encouraged kind of to think about how can we better things. And my dad's an entrepreneur, so we always talked about, you know, at the dinner table, oh, how can we make this better? What could we do? And I was always really encouraged to dream big from from both of my parents. Um, my, you know, first job out of college was at Visa. And um, mm. it was something that actually was a bit more than a job to me because growing up, as I mentioned, you know, first generation immigrants, my mom was always really afraid of the financial system. And I saw her feel really empowered and, and you know, make this new life and home for us in a new country, and really, you know, be a trailblazer in so many ways. But the financial system and credit specifically was something that she was always really afraid of because she felt there were gotchas and things she didn't know. And so she would look to my dad in matters of finances. And that was kind of the one time I saw my mom not really feel confident. That's you know why I wanted that job at Visa to empower my mom and myself and really feel confident in embarking in the system and partaking very actively in a system that's you know very directly related to opportunity. Um, so start off at Visa. Um, joined the credit cards team. I was building popular credit cards, including the very popular Chase Sapphire Reserve. Um, spent multiple years working on that product. I applied and I got- Great card, Thank by the you. way. Great card. Like, <laughs> anybody who has one will tell, it's like, um, it, it reminds me of CrossFit. <laughs> it's like, people are so jazzed about it and they'll tell you. Um, it's like high NPS score, I would say for a credit card. No, a really fun product to work on because I think for the first time we kind of saw this frenzy around a credit product like other products, right? People, you know, unboxing on YouTube and being really excited and talking about the card. And 
it was really formative for me to see the power that kind of a financial tool could also be a status symbol, could be a consumer tool. Um, and so it was you know, a, a really fun product to work on and obviously was very successful. Um, you know, my, my personal story into entrepreneurship starts when I applied for that card at work and I got rejected. Mm. And, um, you know, it was this first, it was the first time that I actually, that's why, that's wild. <laughs> like, <laughs> you like built the card yeah, right? and got... shocking, shocking, but not shocking. Um, and it was the first time that I actually thought about credit funny enough even though i was working on this team and i realized that mm. even though i had a high income working at visa that doesn't matter in your credit score what matters is that you're building credit history and i had been using a debit card primarily and i'd been using my dad's credit card and none of those things were building my credit so when it came to applying mm. for this product i got rejected and I didn't even know, I think, was was the worst part of all of it. Um, so, you know, at that moment, I started looking at visa data and I saw that 70 percent of women were spending in the same way that I was on debit cards mm. and on cards and other people's names like a husband or a parent. And that wasn't building our credit. And what that was leading to was a disproportionate amount of negative credit experiences like getting rejected more often, getting lower credit lines, getting higher interest rates. And overall, just even the reward schemes are really created to reward where men are spending most of the time versus where women are spending, which is you know increasing. And, and we're slated to control 75% of discretionary spend by the end of this decade. So I looked at all this. I knew that women statistically were better to lend to. And it just felt like, it felt like, one thing kept on compounding over the other, and I started just feeling like there was a wrong that I needed to write. And now that I look back, I think they call that conviction. And I started building <laughs> conviction that, you know, we really needed to decenter men in financial services because the system was really, really created to center men actively and that women could be rejected from a credit card without a male co-signer until 1974 and rejected for a business loan without a male co-signer until 1988, which is, you know, in our lifetimes, right? And, and, you know, the downstream impacts are kind of undeniable. So I just said, you know, someone needs to do something about this. Again, I never really felt like I could be an entrepreneur, but I realized that now being an entrepreneur is just caring really deeply about something and feeling like you are the right person to go out there and solve it. Um, so left Visa, went to business school, and and you know we can talk about the rest of the journey there. But that's kind of the yeah. beginning of it. I think I think the the way that I describe the way that I describe really passionate entrepreneurs who have a problem that's occurring in their life is is there's kind of like a wave that's cresting over them of like this desire to fix this thing and it's like you're either going to paddle into this wave and, and kind of you know ride it which is daunting and then you're like i don't even really know how to surf um but this wave is coming and i better get on it or or be be the, the sort of front of this wave um the way that you're describing it it seems like that this was right when you're sort of viewing the wave in the background and, and you're like i've i've got to get on this so 
after business school, and it's clear of like what was the point of wanting to start this company, walk me through sort of the early steps of like finishing school and then, you know, st- you know starting um, Sequin. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started Sequin while I was in business school. And the reason I wanted to go to business school in the first place was, you know, I realized that something was really wrong in the system. And I wanted to explore different ways that I could solve this problem. And I thought if I went to business school, you know, maybe I could be, get the skills to be an executive at a bank and I could solve it. And then I started getting offers at these companies. And I realized that the problem was so much more systemic that I wasn't going to be able to make the change that I wanted to from within an established organization. And I looked around and I said, you know, I don't really see anyone tackling this problem, especially from a credit standpoint. And so I started kind of switching around the activities that I chose during my MBA to reflect a lot more kind of entrepreneurial training, I guess. Um, and so there's a great opportunity. I went to Berkeley Haas. Uh, there was a great opportunity to take a Lean Launchpad course that was taught by Steve Blank. Um, uh, and so it was just an amazing opportunity to start kind of like doing customer interviews. And then mm-hmm. over the summer, I ended up working at the IDEO CoLab, um, which is kind of a very creative part of IDEO as a business designer. And I, you know, again, Time's Up was happening around that time. Me Too was happening. And, and I just kept on thinking, you know, voting with your dollar and, and purchasing power is such a powerful way to make an impact. And women really are looking for ways to spend with our values, to make an impact with our dollar. And, and nothing out there is existing right now. And so I pitched this idea, actually, uh, when I was washing hands next to a woman in the restroom at IDEO, and she ended up being a part of the uh, investment committee. And she said, you know, I think this could be huge. I think you're the right person to go after this. Do you want to pitch to the investment committee at IDEO? And, you know, we can give you a bit of money. Um, You can go out and raise the rest of your your pre-seed round. And, you know, it was one of those moments that I, I mean, if you take this wave analogy, I don't think I knew, you know, that what it was going to take to get ready for that. But I just said, you know, I really care about this and I care about this in a way that I don't think I've ever cared about anything. And I couldn't sleep. You know, I was so excited because I was doing research. And I was talking to users and I just felt like this needed to exist in the world. And so um, ended up pitching to the IDU Investment Committee, they gave me a bit of money and, and you know, went out to raise the rest of the pre-seed, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, that's the yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. I think one for one in fundraising out of the gate is a good place to start. <laughs> but um, I think what's really interesting about that tactic is you just kept talking to people about it. Like you were sort of just like vocal about, well, this is a problem. This is a problem. And like, you were, you know, candidly, you know, you're obviously at the right place at the right time. You had worked your tail off to get to that point. And, and you were obviously had clear domain expertise with, within a massive problem. So like captive audience of IDEO willing to fund you right there is like a perfect opportunity. And I think a lot of early stage entrepreneurs don't kind of look around and say like, if I'm a domain expertise, who are the people that I know who would immediately write me a check? So that's a really good piece of advice you know, you were talking about the rest of the pre-seed. Give us, 
you know, a minute on, 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 on whether it was, it was enjoyable or whether it was a total nightmare. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Sometimes, uh, experiences are two sides of that coin, right? I think, um, you know, what was interesting about the pre-seed was there actually was some interest that I'd gotten, but the, um, the folks who were interested, I didn't feel were necessarily mission driven. And mm. it was kind of this experience that I had, um, now, now I'm remembering everything. It feels so long ago, but yeah, you know, there was some, some men who are really excited to get in on the round. And of course, you know, if they were mission driven, I was very open to that, but I felt that wasn't necessarily the case. And mm. it seemed very easy to fill the rest of the round kind of with folks like that. But I kind of made a decision at that point that it was really important for me. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this was to have more women be in positions of leadership and positions of power and, and positions of wealth. And that means, you know, investing and being a part of cap tables of companies like ours. And so I actually took a longer route and ended up looking for women who could invest um, because I felt they mm. would be a lot more mission driven. Um, you know, that involved finding a way to get to Carrie Schwab Pomerantz. She's the president of the Schwab Foundation. I thought, you know, Schwab's in a lot with financial literacy and women. And I thought, you know, she could be someone who, uh, you know, could help um, and just ended up getting connected to different women's networks. I remember I crashed a board meeting at, at Berkeley Haas. I just said, hey, I would love to share, you know, as, as an MBA starting a company, but I knew that there were gonna be a lot of, um, you know, women who would, might be interested in investing there. And so I presented there and, um, you know, just ended up being really proactive about meeting women. And 92% of our cap table and our pre-seed ended up being women um, and incredible ones by the super aspirational, amazing women um, from, you know, all the top companies. And uh, I'm really glad I made that decision because now that, you know, obviously company building is really challenging every day. And I think just working with people who really believe in you, believe in the mission makes all the difference. And, you know, spoiler, we raised our seed and almost all of those women ended up reinvesting um, because Fantastic. we believe so strongly. So I'm really glad that I took the harder way. I mean, in the moment, if you would have asked me, I think I probably would have been like, I should have just taken those those first few checks. But now looking back, I think it's one of the best decisions I made was to have a really values and mission line cap, cap table. Yeah, and I think, <clears throat> look, you're not doing anything different than the B2B guys always, SaaS almost always, who are getting, um, you know, CEOs and or late stage founders um, who are building those big B2B companies. Um, in this scenario, because your odds and your probability are so much lower, unfortunately, because of the way the market and the ecosystem works, and you made it harder for yourself, but I think you did the right thing ultimately, because this is a purpose, purpose and mission-driven company, and the incumbents, despite maybe talking about it in a commercial, um, are not as intentional. And the way that people uh, associate with brands today is they buy based on values, they buy based on authenticity. And so when it comes to a card that is you know, sort of for women by women, 
it's really important that you did what you did, despite the fact that it was. It sounded like it was you. You sort of made yourself a bigger hurdle. Yeah, I made my life harder for sure. But again, I didn't get into this journey thinking it was going to be easy. So, well, try to orient me around timeline. Like, where are we year wise, month wise, or 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 season? You know, um, you had sort of um, <clears throat> raised a little bit from IDO raised from this amazing syndicate of, of women. You know, at that point, after finishing up the round, I had graduated from business school, so I was working on this full-time, and that was, um, you know, when was that? Summer of 20, uh, 2020. Um, and, uh, you know, the main thing that we were working on at that point was, um, you know, getting our, our product out there. Um, and it was a very interesting time because... Uh, you know, the pandemic was about to hit. And so mm-hmm. the financial landscape, especially for women, changed quite a bit. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll go into that in a bit. But essentially what we're trying to do with our pre-seed was get a lightweight MVP out there um, and, you know, keep on getting users onto, you know, our wait list and, and just keep on learning from them and talking to them and making sure we had a pulse on what was going on because co-creation has been, you know, so at the center of what, what we've been trying to do. Um, so didn't apply to YC at that point. Ended up, I actually applied to YC twice. Um, I applied once, uh, winter 21. Um, and I applied as a solo non-technical founder who had kind of scraped together an MVP by sheer, sheer force, honestly, and will. <laughs> um, and, you know, well, there, there's pieces in between we should talk about, but um, between the pre-seed and that decision. Uh, but I applied mm-hmm. to YC, did the interview um, as a solo non-technical founder, and I got some amazing advice from the YC partners that they said, you know, what you're building is going to be huge. It could be huge. It could be game changing. And you know, ultimately, this is a fintech product. You bring mm-hmm. the fin from your deep financial services expertise, and we think you are the right person to build this company. But what we feel would really elevate and increase your odds would be an amazing technical co-founder to join you. Mm-hmm. And it's something actually that I felt passionate about because I never wanted to be a solo founder, but I also mm. wanted to find the right person to do this with. And again, you know, there aren't a lot of women in financial services and there aren't a lot of women in technology and, and there aren't a lot of women in early stage startups. And so, you know, finding that right person and finding a really mission driven person was something that, again, I wasn't going to compromise on the same way I didn't compromise on, on our cap table. And so after having that conversation with YC, I started kind of going back out there on the search and I ended up um, meeting my incredible technical co-founder now, Mark Thomas. Uh, We actually met on a platform that YC launched, um, co-founder matching. But you know, with Mark, it was more instant. Uh, We had Mm. a mutual connection. My very, very close family friend, I would call her almost my godmother, um, had worked with Mark at PayPal in engineering leadership. Mm. And so when Mark and I connected, I saw his profile. I said, of course, you know, having this deep financial services expertise from PayPal and, and, you know, a ton of engineering leadership experience, but also he had had a background in startups and had spent the better part of the last decade in mission-driven startups um, geared towards women, I said, you know, this is an angel that 
Well, I, I called my, my godmother. I said, how is he? And, and she said, you know, he has really high integrity. Um, and to mm. me, that's the way I've always wanted to live my life. I wanted to run my company. Integrity is a very kind of core value of mine. And the fact that that was the one thing she pointed out, um, you know, we started working together the next day and the day after and the day after. And, and, you know, it was a really natural fit. And, you know, working with him has been amazing. So we applied to Y Combinator uh, together um, this, uh, this summer. We applied late. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. we wanted to make sure we could work together. And we'd worked together for a few months and said, you know, maybe we can throw our hat in the ring again. And, you know, the same partners interviewed us and, you know, said, Mark seems great. You guys seem like a great team. Again, we still love what you're building. So come on in. And, and Y Combinator was just an amazing, amazing game-changing experience for us. So, yeah, that's some of the timelines. Yeah, that's great. And, and there's two things I want to reflect there. One of the, when I was looking for co-founders, I eventually found my crew and they were people that I had worked with before. One of the things that I did before, well, as we signed the incorporation documents was also sign a, what we called founding document of excellence. And two, two of my co-founders were lawyers. And so they're like, this is a non-binding. And, but then over time we realized that it was a social contract and a verbal contract, which in some cases has a lot more value than, than, than a physical contract uh, or legal contract. And one of the things that we really agreed to in that document was what are the, th- what are the early values that we care about? And like, that's what we're going to instill for the first 10, the first hundred employees. So the way that you tactically went out, not only for somebody who had the skills, but was very deeply aligned on values. I don't think it's something that a lot of people do. And it's, it's, it's often why founding teams have friction is that there's a misalignment of individual values or, you know, philosophical approaches. Um, the second thing I want to get into uh, is what, what was the sequin sort of headline elevator pitch at that time? You know, and what, what were you really focused on um, achieving with the initial kind of MVP as you, as you, as you noted? Yeah. One thing John, through all the twists and turns that I'm really proud of is we've kept the problem very close to our heart. And the problem is that women are disproportionately impacted by matters of credit, and we need to fix that. And so, you know, where we first started and what Sequin originally was, was kind of a Chase Sapphire Reserve for women. And, you know, there would be tooling in it that would help you kind of manage credit and the rewards would be um, a lot more, you know, where women are spending versus where men are spending. And that I'd written a medium article. It had blown up. It went viral. It was, you know, in a bunch of magazines overnight, which is kind of a very interesting experience for me. Um, But I think I realized (laughs) that I'm really, really onto something. And as I mentioned, again, the other thing that I, continually did was talk to our users and talk to women every single day, multiple times a day, just to understand, okay, what is the pulse on, you know, how are you spending? How are you feeling about finances? Where are you getting your education about credit? How are you using credit today? What are the problems with it? What do you wish you had? You know, all of those questions. Um, And what I realized was when the pandemic hit, there was a lot more questions around 
how to build credit and how to access credit versus mm. once I've accessed credit, how do I optimize this, which is kind of where we started. After the pandemic, we saw that women were being disproportionately impacted because they lacked credit. And that was around PPP loans. A lot of women are running small businesses, so they're not underwriting your business, they're underwriting you. Um, also, women were, again, losing their jobs at greater rates, and so um, mm. you know, relying more on credit as well. So there's kind of the shift that I was seeing from rewards and you know the, the fun things that having access to credit can get you towards I really need to understand how to build credit, and I don't know how to do that right now. And once I get it, I mm. don't, I, I don't feel confident in it. So I'm not going to use it. I'm going to use a debit card that's not building my credit. And so I started, you know, doing kind of going back to the drawing board and thinking about, you know, what are some of the problems in the existing credit system, and how does our credit system reflect systemic biases against women? And again, you know, it's illegal to say if woman, then no, but there are, we all know that algorithms reflect, you know, what's going on in society. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot going on, you know, negatively towards women. Mm. And so one of the things that we saw was the factors that go into your credit score are reflecting the fact that women are having lower incomes and are lacking credit history. And so it's making our risk look artificially inflated. And so... Mm. Where I started, again, I hadn't met Mark at this time. So I was just searching for truth, basically. I knew, again, the problem was very close. Women are being disproportionately impacted, but what is going on? So what I ended up doing was I got a cohort of women together, and I got their credit card statements, and I manually texted them recommendations for how to build their credit score. And what I realized was that their credit utilization, which is just the percentage of their credit line that they're using because they have lower credit lines, was too high. And so I would say, mm. pay off your credit card more often, pay it off when it gets you know, greater than 10%, and their credit scores would go up 25 to 30 points in a week. A wow. week. <laughs> and so wow. what I'm gleaning from this is, okay, this problem is solvable. And so when I met Mark, we said, okay, you know, I had kind of hacked together an app, begged a friend to code it, that basically made it scalable instead of, you know, me going through highlighting manually. Everything. Yeah, yeah, that made it so that they could actually input their existing credit cards and we could optimize their credit score. But again, where we wanted to start was let's actually get women into the system, help them understand how to build their credit, and then build a whole suite of credit products on top of that. But they need to understand the system first and, and be nurtured into it. So then when Mark and I got into Y Combinator, we you know, started thinking about, okay, could we actually launch a debit card, which is where women are spending, and actually have that built credit and also have the rewards and also have the education. Um, but that's what we spend most of our time in YC doing. And, and you know, we launched an initial beta version of that credit building debit card during, during Y Combinator, um, which ended up leading to our seed round. Amazing. Um, one thing I like to also bring up is tooling and traction and like how you were measuring things and what you were really focused on as far as like, your sort of North Star metric? You know, we're post-seed. We have normal KPIs like revenue and users <laughs> and growth, right? Those are the ones that, that you know, you, you should be measuring. But I do think in the pre-seed phase where 
we were trying to figure out, you know, what is the insight and what is the problem and, and how do we actually solve that very specific problem, which ended up being, you know, credit utilization and education. Um, you know, it was simply two things. One, what percentage of our cohort is experienced a credit line increase? Um, I, I'm sorry, a, a credit line and a credit score increase. And the second thing we looked at was our NPS around our educational events. So are you actually learning? Are you learning? Um, you know, do you feel more confident? Do you feel more empowered after coming to our events? And then I guess the third piece was referral rate. 90% um, of our cohort referred two or more friends. And that made us feel like, you know, we were on the right track as well. So those were metrics that we kind of came up with internally of, are we on the right track? Are we solving a problem? And now that, you know, we are building out our product, now we have like normal product, um, product <laughs> metrics. But at that point, right. I'm, I'm grateful that we, you know, thought about it in terms of, okay, what's a problem we're trying to solve? And is this solving the problem, um, which are slightly different? Yeah. No, and that and, and that's really, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of pre-seed is, um, wandering in the woods trying to solve the problem and it may not feel like every day is making progress from a you know data analysis perspective or your key metrics but if every conversation that you have with a potential customer or customer unlocks a very clear qualitative sentiment that you're making a difference in their life then you you know that when you actually do la launch live out of you know out of a beta um the likelihood that it will work, I think, goes up. And especially if it's not your friends, right? Or if it is your friends, they're actually paying for the service or product, you know? Like people taking a survey and saying, yeah, I would use this product versus people paying for your service or product is like a huge difference. So, um, well, look, I could talk to you uh, for hours, <laughs> um, but because your story is so amazing. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Talk to me about when you knew you wanted to raise a seed and what you did next. Was it a deck? Was it a list of investors? Um, you were so intentional with your pre-seed, so maybe you were very intentional with the seed as well, or even more intentional with the seed round. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so Mark and I, during Y Combinator, our you know goal was to get live <laughs> um, and you know building a debit card that builds credit sounds simple, but is actually very technically complicated and comes with its, you know, really heavy regulatory challenges of kind of having a dual product because debit and credit products are not meant to interact the way that, you know, the whole ecosystem is created. So Mark and I actually launched um, a beta version of our product in seven weeks, which is unheard of. Amazing. Every estimate we had heard was this is at least going to take you six to nine months, and we did it in seven weeks. Um, and that was, I think, because you know we we didn't make any mistakes, and I think we were pretty intentional. You know, between us, we have two decades of fintech experience, so um, I think we're able to make the right choices. So once we had our um, kind of the beta version of our product working, then we started thinking about, okay, what is it gonna take to take this to the next level? You know, this is kind of hacked together. It, 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 it works the bare minimum, essentially, where, you know, obviously it's it's personal financial data and it's people's credit scores. You know, it needed to, to be a bit elevated and that's just something hacky that we threw out. But, um, you know, how do we take this to the next level and what do we need? And so, 
part of that is capital, right? With fintech, it is very capital intensive. And, you know, there, there's small things from the credit bureaus requiring you to have an office space, right? So you can't just hack out of your, out of your parents' basement. That's not something you can do. So um, that's one piece. Also, even just being able to pay the network of partners to make something like this happen, it's very costly. Um, to have the lending capital as well, you know, you're not really going to be raising a debt facility as a very early stage startup. So you're kind of lending from your equity as well. So, you know, we realized that we we're going to need a tranche of capital to be able to uh, get to the next step, which is essentially, you know, have a more robust product that can be out there at scale. Um, that also involves, you know, more user testing and it involves growing out a team. And so that's kind of how we thought about, okay, time to raise this, this pre-seed amount is not going to you know get us where we need to be at least from a product perspective so um, yeah so realize that we want to raise we set a target of how much we wanted to raise and you know to your point wanted to be really intentional again so where I started and again I think this is why being so intentional with the pre-seed round was was really helpful was there was not one investor in the pre-seed round that I wouldn't be glad to have have you know more a part of our companies more yeah yeah more involved yeah so i went back to our pre-seed cap table and i said you know we're going to start raising soon but i want to give you all you know early access to this and so we actually ended up filling up a lot of our round pretty quickly with that which was amazing um and then afterwards you know started thinking about what else might we need um and really kind of focused on you know the pre-seed was focused around um just incredible women and, and you know, getting kind of the buy-in there. Um, in the seed, still prioritize that a lot. In addition to investors who had invested in fintech um, startups that are now big companies. So a lot of our investors now were early in SoFi and Afterpay um, and, you know, Robinhood and a lot of amazing consumer tech companies. So they really get it. Um, and so that's been very helpful as well. Uh, so yeah, just made a target list, um, did a lot of research, talked to a lot of fellow founders as well around, um, especially fintech companies, you know, which investors do you feel like really got what you were trying to do and, and you know, were helpful, you know, when it was the right time, but gave you space when you needed time as well. And, um, <laughs> and uh, yes. yeah. Thank you, but I, I don't need your help right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The best way you can support me right now is to just give me some space. Be quiet. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, such, it, it also takes, I think, a, a really secure and supportive investor to receive that as well, right? To say, you know, I trust you. I'm giving you your space. But when you need me, I'm here. And um, yeah, you know, we really love, love the investors in our cap table as well. So, yeah. Well, one thing I always like to ask founders is, what was the what were the numbers like how many folks did you set out to talk to um how many people said yes out of how many people said no what was sort of the rough percentage yeah would you say i you know honestly we have a spreadsheet and probably i could go back and do that calculation but i think for my emotional health that's not <laughs> you know, that i want yeah. to do what i will say is you know Fundraising is all-encompassing, and yep. bless Mark's heart, he was on product, on customer support, was doing everything, and I was focused on fundraising. And I, you know, sometimes was taking 
at the start, I was taking 10 meetings a day, and then I realized that I that was not sustainable, so I kind of brought it nope. down to you know four or four or five. Um, and I think, you know, my reflections upon that time, it honestly was a blur. I spoke with so many, so many investors, and again, we had this added uh, added filter of are they mission aligned and do they get what we're trying to do? So right. you know, we were fortunate to be oversubscribed in our rounds, so we could kind of pick and choose. Okay, is this you know who who you know we want to be on this journey with us? But one thing I will say is, you know, I think especially at the seed stage. What you're investing is in is a team and a vision. And I think conviction is either there or it's not there. And I think, you know, some of the some of the folks we spoke to where it was, you know, okay, multiple meetings and kind of a drawn out process. I think, you know, there's a lack of conviction there. And I think the next right. time I go out to do this, um, you know, just making that process shorter of there is conviction or there isn't. And it doesn't have to do with anything other than, do you feel like we're a team that can execute? And is this a world you want to live in? Say, that's my reflection on the period. I think I could have saved myself a bit of time by you know, sussing out conviction early on. I mean, look, it's very hard in those early days to be unemotional about people saying that your baby is beautiful or your baby is ugly, right? And Or I don't know if I like your baby. <laughs> so like, I always... It's not surprising that you're course correcting for future rounds to just be more process driven. Um, one thing I'm noticing with you is you're very intentional about all of these systems and processes. And that's um, the mark of some of the best entrepreneurs, right? Like when, as an investor now and former founder CEO, the founders that are like, hey, I, I want to reach out to you because of these three reasons and what you did. Um, it could be helpful one way or the other versus a form email that what did you raise and what was the sort of headline when you closed? Obviously, congratulations. We ended up across our pre-seed and our seed round raising 5.7 million, um, which was amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, just having that luxury of being able to pick and choose who we wanted on our cap table, I think was the best part. And, you know, we, we really love all of our investors. Um, and uh, I mean, I think the other piece is, you know, about again, you know, 92% women, you know, reinvesting as well and have some amazing, you know, FinTech investors who've been on the ground floor of now huge, you know, uh, uh, you know, household name FinTechs. Um, and a lot of, uh, you know, amazing women as well. Um, we have the CEO of Ancestry, which is very cool. Um, the former head of product on Instagram, who um, is not a woman, but is very allied. Um, and yeah, just some like amazing, amazing folks who have been willing to go to bat for us and, you know, give us the support when we've needed it. And, and you know, especially connecting us with great folks as well. One thing I want to normalize a little bit if we were talking about this before the show was very low percentage of companies make it to a, a venture back seed round, very low percentage of people make it into YC. More importantly, very low percentage of raising capital as a woman of color, right? So I think we calculated that your probability is close to like winning the California lottery if you bought a couple tickets a year. <laughs> so just like crazy. Uh, and Shows systematic flaw in the in the in in the industry. Um, what would you say to those listeners and viewers who might 
you know, look like you uh, about how to kind of keep your cool during this process because you are very clearly polished and, and you, you know, but you have experienced probably a lot of difficulty during the during um, the early years of building the company. Uh, what would you say to those viewers and listeners um, when, when thinking about starting a company? I think the most important thing never to forget is the problem that you're solving and to feel so strongly about something that people who you believe to be a lot smarter than you are telling you this is never going to work and you just don't care. <laughs> I think that's, and, and you know, that conviction gets built over time and it gets built from talking to your users because for every single investor that told us, this is crazy, this isn't going to work, there were a hundred women who said, I really need this and I feel so much more confident after having interacted with Sequence products. And those are the voices that I hear, not the ones of, you know, someone who's been sitting behind a desk, never experienced, you know, any inequity in the credit system. And honestly, I'm not sure what other inequities they have experienced. Yeah. So I think, you know, right. solving a problem that you really care about, no one's going to be able to tell you it's not going to work because you believe it works. And I think one of the pieces that I've been really steadfast on when talking to women who look like me, who are excited to be founders, which by the way, is one of the best parts about this journey, is viewing the fact that you are different as your superpower, right? Mm. That I was able to even see this huge opportunity is the fact that I was different from the people who've interacted with this, you know, building these products before. I looked very different from most of the people I worked with at Visa. And I had a very different experience, but my experience ended up being emblematic of so many women's experiences that look like me. And so, you know, there's this article I read um, that said that every single woman is a walking billion dollar opportunity because mm. the world hasn't really been designed to center us. And so, um, you know, I love if that. something isn't working for you, it's probably not you. It's probably the way it was designed. And you can do something about it and solve a problem for so many women. So I think that's, um, that's kind of my takeaways of, you know, the fact that you are different is your superpower. And the second is just stay with your convictions and don't, don't let anyone tell you that, that they're wrong. Unless they're your users, and then you can start thinking about how to build better for them. But at least it's it's the problem is there, and you feel very convicted that the problem is there. Super optimistic. It's there's a business opportunity in inequality. I love that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, well, congratulations on the round. I always like to end on what's the twelve month plan and what's the ten year plan. Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, one thing, John, we're hyper-focused on right now is getting our product in the hands of users and, um, and launching our rewards program as well. Um, our rewards are different from any products I was building at Visa, and they're meant to pay back the pink tax. Um, and so we have, you know, really transparent reward scheme. We have cash back. We have a statement credit on pink tax categories where, you know, women are shopping more like healthcare, um, you know, pharmacies, beauty services, et cetera, household goods. 
And um, we also have partnerships with amazing women-founded companies. Um, and you know, there's workshops and discounts on um, personal branding services and mental health services. So it's very cool. I'm super excited to get it out there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's the plan for, for the next year is, you know, launching that, getting feedback and, and keep on making it better. And then, you know, the 10 year plan, John, is, is to have a whole suite of credit products that actually nurtures women through the credit system from the day they get their, you know, first paycheck and they start thinking about building credit in their own name all the way throughout our lives. And the way that the system is is today is that women are kind of falling off at each step. And so we want to kind of be that place where you have a goal, and many times those goals are tied to financial and credit goals. So for example, you know, if you're looking to buy a house, what we see with mortgages is even though women are more likely to pay their mortgages on time, we're getting higher interest rates. Um, you know, so we want to kind of go into, into mortgages. Also thinking about loans for maternity leave, that's something that doesn't really mm. exist today. Right. And so there's so, so much we can do when we're kind of thinking about this all from first principles. What are women's wants and needs and aspirations, which are everything? And then how do we help them kind of achieve those goals in a way that starts from the very beginning, um, you know, through through our entire lives? Well, Vrinda, I've like absolutely enjoyed. We're, we're normally scheduled for like 20 to 30 minutes, but your story is so compelling that I just couldn't stop asking questions. Um, thanks again for coming on Seed Stories. I know that the future is super bright for you and Sequin. Um, and so thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. It was a blast. <laughs>